Welcome back to Computer Lab Hijinks. This is the Computer Lab. I am Nathan, bringing you a new episode with... I'm Sadaf. Um, anything else uh, that you'd want to know about me is clearly none of your business. But I do appreciate you inviting me. This is my first time on. Welcome to the Computer Lab. The Computer Lab. We have a computer. It's perfect. Yeah. Um, it reminds me of the ones that you have at school. Because mm-hmm. I went to public school. Yeah. Also, um, I did bring in my ghost. I hope that's okay. Because the, the horror theme of today's episode... Hopefully that shows up. It lights up. I like it. Thank you. Nice. Anyway, he'll be uh, here with us because it's male. It's a man. It's a man, which also ties into today's subject, horror and gender. Yes. This is a male ghost. Yeah, I thought maybe just uh, even things out since there's uh, someone who's feminized in this this computer space just to counteract that. Well, Um, on that note, actually, to cut you off, which is also relevant, um, <laughs> yes. I, as a complete shithead who cannot acknowledge the humanity of 50% of the population, mm-hmm. uh, I need to ask, can you name three video games and Harvest Moon doesn't count? Okay, so I came prepared because men ask me all the time, hey, mm-hmm. like, do you play video games? And I say, yeah. Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, what do you play? So I just thought it'd be really good Here for me go. to show you. Yeah. Um, these are like my top three. So top three video games, just just to prove that you can name three games. Here we just go. Just three. Okay. So Will Ferrell, Volume oh, 2, Best of. The Best of Will Ferrell. On SNL. Volume 2. Okay, that's a solid game. Really good. Um, the second one being Saw. Oh! I love Carrie Elwes. Yeah. I love playing as Danny Glover. On UMD Video. So you can watch that on the bus. You can watch that on the train. Anywhere. That's a good game. Pretty much anywhere. Anywhere. Anyway, in okay. my third one, I'm a huge Adam Sandler fan. Mm-hmm. Um, As you should be. Yeah. Um, so, Longest Yard. Ooh. Feature, fi- it actually says feature film on there. Oh. Which the others did not say. No. So, it was based, this video game is based on a feature film. There we go. I think they just didn't have the room to say that. That's a solid, it looks like a solid game. It's got Chris Rock. Well, you've officially proven that you are a gamer. With your three games, so yep. thank you. No um, today we're going to talk about more video games. Uh, we have played together all of the available co-op Resident Evil games in the mainline series. Yes. Except for six, which is a bad game for bad people. Yes, apparently. I don't really care or agree. <laughs> I don't really have an opinion on it. Um, but I will say, yeah, playing the co-op games with you, you went a little too fast for me, I think. Mm. Well, we have different priorities, right? Yeah, I'm more of a completionist. I like looking around. Yeah. I like trying to see if you can interact with every single item in the game, <laughs> Yeah, uh, which can be a waste of time sometimes. Well, I think we both take it to unhealthy extremes where I think you're collecting so many things that it feels a lot more like a Where's Waldo experience. And I am powering through with such aggression that there's a question to be asked, which is, are you even having fun at this point? So I think we're both kind of missing the point. I was also really scared playing, was it Revelations? Oh, yeah, Revelations Yeah, yeah. I was uh, home alone and we're playing, I think... We we're playing online. We we're playing online. Yeah, <laughs> at the start of the pandemic on the PS3, which I was surprised the online still worked. Yeah, it was kind of scary. And I'm like, can you slow down? I don't want to... It was home alone. It was dark. There's a big TV in a yeah. basement and stuff would just kind of pop out. Right? Yeah, yeah, so... A little too fast for all sorts of reasons, I would have yeah. to say, but that one was kind of scary. Well, Revelations 2 is probably the only one that's co-op and is trying to be scary. Because 5 is trying a number of things. 6 is trying to be a fake Michael Bay movie. 
Revelations 2 is like trying to return to form, sort of. Mm-hmm. It's, it's actually pretty scary. It's a scary time. Yeah, it did scare me, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah, and five that we played together, well. Well, there's a lot to say about five. Um, really jarring, I would have to say. Yeah, a lot of <laughs> jarring images in that game. And, you know, when I was playing it, my first thought was someone needs to write a PhD dissertation on this. And yeah. someone did. Dr. Chris Alton is the subject of today's interview. So this was actually quite a long interview. We had to uh, split it up into three parts. Mm-hmm. There was just an awful lot to say. And so this is our intro for part one. It's an audio-only interview. I'm going to put a little nice visualizer so you can you can see what you're hearing. But um, we're going to talk about Resident Evil 1 and 2 in their original forms. Yeah, so I think the bulk of the discussion, I guess also the thing that Dr. Chris Dr. has Chris. Um, discussed, and I think it's his thesis, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, about gender simulations in Resident Evil. Yes, that um, is part of the the title, which I'm forgetting, but yeah. I guess you'll, we can put it up in we'll the video. We'll put it up on screen. In the video, yeah. Um, I think both of us coming from, you know, film, communications, visual studies, backgrounds, feminist uh, theory comes up a lot and how mm-hmm. we apply it to most media. Uh, but in this case, we're doing it with video games. Yeah, yep. and I, I think there's a... Um, there's sort of a, not a script to it, but there's something we expect from feminist discourses on gaming, which is a lot to do with like sexualized images, yeah. right? Like if we're talking about Lara Croft, if we're talking about Overwatch in its original form, we're sort of talking about the player's gaze or like assumptions on who the player is. Um, and with Resident Evil, I guess, as we'll hear in the interview, it's, it's kind of a different conversation. It's a bit more formal to gaming itself. Right. And I think also, I think the thing that we do talk about is the shift that we sort of see from... Sorry, Resident Evil 1 and 2 to mm-hmm. the rest of this series and specifically yes. dramatic shift in how women players are sort of or characters are sort of played the portrayal of of women like even NPCs and then we talk about it 1.2 it, it goes it goes up and then it goes down it's yeah. it's all over the place yeah but which is I mean that's why it's so interesting to talk about and that's I think that's part of why we ended up having such a long podcast yeah. with Chris. Yeah, it was a very far-reaching conversation. And I think not to overstate an obvious point, but there's just such a joy in hearing from someone who has spent an awfully long time by his own estimate it was 6 years writing this uh, dissertation so that's an amazing thing. Yeah. Um he truly has spent so much time researching Resident Evil. I mean he talks about playing is it all four versions of Resident Evil 2? Like it, within the PS1 version, there's like four different complete campaigns. Right, yeah. Um, and like he references the the novelizations of the Resident Evil games, which blew my mind. Like stuff that I had forgotten existed. He had gone through it all, made footnotes. I mean, this is a very detailed piece of writing and research. Yeah, we were pretty lucky to have him. So I think y'all will enjoy it as much as we did. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah so Dr. Chris Alton, PhD, We'll link to all his work in the show notes, and he will discuss it further in the interview that you are about to hear right now. So here we go. Dr. Chris Alton, PhD, interview, part one of three. Roll the clip. You are, I, I know you as Dr. Chris, PhD from Twitter, but um, how, would you, uh, <laughs> how would you introduce yourself? That's honestly a good question, because like, I, I actually am a doctor, not that kind of doctor, but <laughs> I, I do, like the doctor and the PhD are actually appellations that I've earned. But it feels weird for me to, like, throw that around. So, like, I would either introduce myself as Dr. Chris Alton or just Chris from Mako Powered. Uh, <laughs> sure, yeah. 
what whatever you'd prefer to go with uh i'm comfortable with whatever nice i mean i always think of you as the resident evil doctor but of course you're not the bad kind of uh, horrendous uh, pandemic plague doctor <laughs> yep yep that also has bad connotations um i guess just uh really broadly um so you've written this dissertation on resident evil um how would you uh, sort of describe that okay uh well it's complicated because I wanted to look at the gender dynamics in the series. So I look at that through the lens of presentation. So audio visuals, the narrative, as well as the game mechanics. So what is the player tasked with doing? What abilities do they have based on the character they're using? And how are they expected to accomplish what they're being asked? The thing is, with my approach, I also took a historiographical one, which means that I looked at how these perceptions and approaches changed across the entire history of the series from game to game, including the offshoot games. Um, there's a reason I have videos for both Survivor and Resident Evil Gaiden, because I just couldn't squeeze them into the dissertation proper. Sure, yeah. I have to ask, the offshoot games, is that like Revelations? Or not Revelations? What's yes. The one that we, yeah, okay, it is. Okay. Yeah, so there's stuff like... Uh, Survivor, Dead Aim, the Revelations games, and then you get into the weeds with Operation Raccoon City, Umbrella Corps. Mm. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, that one in particular, yeah, it deserves that. Yeah, yeah. I think the multiplayer, I don't, I don't know, do we want to call them games or just multiplayer add-ons for the recent remakes? Oh, like the, yeah, I'm not even sure what the moniker is for that, but because yeah. I guess it's DLC, uh, but it comes with it. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I think the one with Resident Evil 3 was RE-verse, mm -hmm. and I don't remember what the one with 8 is, but uh, they're interesting, but they feel like an afterthought, mm -hmm. despite how much Capcom pushed them at each game's release. Yeah, because I, I, I read those as like, they're trying to compete with um, Day uh, Until Dawn, is that what I'm thinking of? It just seemed like they were trying to compete with something that was popular. Yeah, yeah, and is it is it Dead by Dawn? Oh, Dead by Dawn, that sounds more correct. Yeah, I mean, uh, even before we get into the essay proper, like the Resident Evil timeline, I guess, gets kind of messy because some of the games that you alluded to, like it's almost a transmedia thing, like some of the uh, light gun games cross over with the main series, probably in ways that slightly contradict the canon. I'm not quite sure how that works. Oh, yeah, especially in the early days, uh, there's a lot mm. of external media that was canon and then wasn't like uh, I believe I can't remember if I actually include an excerpt from one of S.D. Perry's books. Yes, you I did. Well, that blew my mind. <laughs> was it the Resident Evil 3 one where she talks about how Jill wore the tube top for ease of movement? Yes. Yeah, I saw it, it was very, uh, it was very Metal Gear Solid. <laughs> yeah, because I don't know any woman who would. Well, aside from Perry herself. <laughs> would say that a t tube top lends itself to ease of movement, especially acrobatic or athletic movement. <laughs> yeah, that's not. I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> I'll leave. But, I'll leave the one as it is. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, the, like the thing with Perry's books is she actually has installments in between the main entries of the games to that point, mm. where she's trying to fill in some of the lore and some of the backstory, which then gets overwritten as the main games in the series come out hmm. uh same deal with the right after resident evil 2 released dc and wildstorm released 
a comic book series that attempted to fill in gaps in the canon as well. And that has also been retconned. It's a whole thing. It's a whole mess. <laughs> and it, it, it was really interesting and frustrating sifting through all of it. Sure. Yeah. I mean, the, once you got into the novels that like that just felt like you were going so into the weeds because I remember seeing those in like the school library and it, it just seemed like it was for the hardcore fans only. But uh, I, I was really happy to see that in your dissertation. Like that just shows like, oh, yeah, this is like really we're getting into things. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I actually wound up hunting down all of them. I, I have oh, them nice. all on my bookshelf right now, along with the comic I just mentioned and a bunch of the art books uh, like the funniest thing is I actually had to invent a citation style mm. uh, for the Resident Evil 2 chapter because I, it, it turned out later that uh, two different pieces of external media named Mr. X at the same time. There's oh. the yeah, uh, I didn't hit on the game fan uh, strategy guide until afterwards when one of the researchers, on, Resident Evil researchers on Twitter, clued me into the fact that it came out at the same time, but I discovered that one of the first instances of that version of the tyrant being named Mr. X was the toy that Toy Biz released in 1999. Hmm. He is not named Mr. X in the game, not in the instruction manual, and is not referred to as such at any point of you play through, either as Leon or Claire. Whoa. Yep. Oh, so that's like an Ewok thing, right? Like it's it's it, all the transmedia. Exactly. That is exactly where my mind went uh, <laughs> when I discovered that. That's wild. Um, well, that definitely raises some questions for me. But um, I guess before I take us too far off track, we'll get into our first formal question, which I think Sadaf has. Awesome. Okay. So what I want to start with is, um, so how did you go about choosing Resident Evil and gender as the topic for your dissertation? I guess it's, that's the first part of the question. And I do want to know, I guess, um, what were you hoping to write about Resident Evil from the beginning? Like, were you hoping to write about Resident Evil from the beginning? Or did you want to find a game where the gender politics hadn't received as much academic attention? Okay, so <laughs> so the answer to this, I guess, to show how naive I was as a grad student. I was like, oh, you know what? My dissertation is going to be on gender in video games. Period. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Very broad. I like, yeah, I, like I still have some of the uh, research that I did because I was going to look at the Tomb Raider series. So I found mm. some of the Tomb Raider novelizations and again, the Wildstorm comic. I, I was going to talk about Mario. I was like, I wanted to do everything and <laughs> the then whole realized. Thing. Yeah, yeah, the whole thing. And it's like, no, no, <laughs> that's a bad idea. You need to narrow it down. <laughs> so I was already going to talk about Resident Evil. And since I do have a basis in horror studies, I thought that that in addition to the intersection of horror and gender that there is already a scholarly base for was a good jumping off point for discussing interactive horror. Because the, there are books on horror video games, but and not but, but uh, they they caught my attention. And I wanted to contribute to that discourse as well. So hmm. it, it initially started from a point of naivete and then narrowed down to, OK, I, I can actually I can actually talk about this. Let's do this. Hmm. Would you say are you one of the first people that I think have looked at Resident Evil in this way? Is that something that's generally talked about? Uh, well, Resident Evil comes up a lot and 
just a sec, I'm going to mute for a second because I think I actually have the anthology that I used in my research uh, at my desk here. I'm just going to take two seconds and check. Yeah, sure, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, yeah, here we go. Uh, so it's it's a McFarland published book. Oh, wow. It's in their Contributions to Zombie Studies series. It's titled Unraveling Resident Evil, and it's an anthology uh, by a collection of scholars on on the games, but the issue is it's equally as focused on the movie series, which... <laughs> um, <laughs> it's its own kind of thing. It, it, that, that's a nice way of putting it. Yeah, we'll we'll go with that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I find... I mean, I've only done an undergrad, but I found when writing about film, like horror, there's just this incredible body of scholarship that other genres maybe don't have as much of. D- did you find that was the case for games? So that gets more interesting because mm. with the added dimension of interactivity with games, what... What I found looking at a lot of horror video game scholarship was the focus was on the player's experience of fear and how games generate that emotional reaction as opposed to more traditional forms of media. Hmm. It, it was more it was more about affect, which is the immediate visceral experience than it was about breaking down what the narrative what the narrative is doing how the narrative is doing that and how the mechanics are contributing to that and vice versa. Um, for my dissertation defense, I actually had one of the preeminent horror, horror game scholars as my external uh, examiner. And he, ta- he talked about how I took in certain chapters a psychoanalytic approach because that's more of a film-based thing as opposed to other humanities. And he thought that was a really interesting approach and hadn't mm. seen it that much. So, yeah, like... I am interested in how games scare people, but at the same time, if you look at a lot of, say, horror film scholarship, it's not, it's less about the affect and more about what the films are doing with subtext, with uh, character dynamics, with gender dynamics. And so that's that's more of the approach that I wanted to take. Because hmm. my, my background is actually in film. I kind of fell backwards into video game studies in my undergrad uh, hmm. and then just kind of got pushed into it during my MA and haven't really looked back since. <laughs> um, this wasn't one of the planned questions, but you brought up affect theory. We actually, um, our previous episode on the show was about Aubrey Annable's uh, playing with feelings, which like blew my mind. Oh. Like I love that book so much. Oh yeah. Um, and I love that. I love Aubrey. Uh, I actually, I actually took one of her classes during my MA, and uh, oh, wow. we still talk occasionally when we run into each other at conferences. But oh, that is so cool! Yeah, shout out to that book. Um, yeah, I will say like it's and this is sort of just me um, talking armchair, but like uh, in terms of the affect of playing a horror game like Resident Evil, like you are scared by the images, but also especially in the first few games, like with the lack of saves, you're like really scared that you're going to lose your tangible progress. I feel like I wonder if that comes up at all. Yeah, th- that is something that. Uh, OK, that gets complicated because mm. it depends on the game. And you're right. With the earlier games, there is more of a concern over the f- like there is more of a fear rather over the loss of progress because, you know, you're playing a game, you know, you're you know, you're in a safe space. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, there is still that affect of you are operating as that character in that unsafe space and there are consequences to your actions. Hmm. If you lose, you are going to lose all of that progress, which is something that, again, this is complicated because on the one hand, 
I wish modern games had that sort of consequence weight to them. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, nobody has time to lose <laughs> all of that progress and then go back and do it again unless you're actually getting paid to do that. But mm. yeah, so I, I, I'm honestly not sure where I stand on that. I know that certain modern games, particularly in the indie space or semi-indie at this point, because I don't know if uh, Daybreak 1998 uh, counts as indie. Yeah, it's Daymare 1998. It, what Essentially, it was developed by Invader Studios. I, I just brought it up. Okay. Uh, it, it was their take on what a Resident Evil 2 remake might look like without obviously getting sued by Capcom. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, honestly, it it's available for really cheap on a regular basis on like the PlayStation Store, the Nintendo uh, eShop. Uh, they actually just came out with a sequel a little while ago, uh, Daymare 1994. It's interesting that we're getting throwback survival horror games, but with modern trappings. So the idea of what to keep and what to change in order to make it make the experience more accessible to players is an interesting one. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's cool. Yeah. I mean, when I think of like Dark Souls being hard, which is kind of like the the, the popular one to cite, it's still unlimited saves. It still kind of resets your health flasks when you die. It is still a pretty inaccessible game, but some stuff in the first Resident Evil is like unthinkable now by today's standards. Oh, oh, especially the North American release, original long box Resident Evil, where mm. uh, to paraphrase uh, Derek Alexander on Stop Skeletons from Fighting, that game was intentionally broken because of the North American rental market. Oh, uh, so, so yeah, original black label, long box, Resident Evil. You do not have the auto aim. And mm. so it, it like the controls feel a lot more like Alone in the Dark, which is which is fair because Alone in the Dark kind of inspired the gameplay for Resident Evil after a fashion. But those can not having that lock on works with the zombies because they're slow moving, they're shambling, still dangerous, but you have more of an ability to react. Again, going back to what uh, Derek Alexander said on his uh, episode, it's when the fast moving enemies are introduced that the game gets unfair because removing that lock on makes it very, very difficult and turns the game into a lot more of a slog. Like I remember when I first got my PlayStation back in the day, I got the PlayStation, Resident Evil and Crash Bandicoot. Hmm. What I didn't get was a memory card. Oh, oh, oh. So I got to experience the full force of the lack of auto aim with the lack of an ability to save. So, <laughs> yeah. You got the roguelike Resident Evil. Yeah. How yep. many hours were lost to just playing these games? And like, how would you even play? Like, oh, I, <laughs> yeah. It, like, it was an attempt to play Resident Evil in one sitting or right. crash. Crash Bandicoot just cannot be played in one sitting. Like, I think Mm -hmm. a week after I got my PlayStation, I was like, okay, this is impossible. I need a memory card. Sure, yeah. (laughs) I'm tempted to jump ahead, but I'll actually, just to keep uh, for myself, just keep us on track. Um, I'm curious for your research and um, uh, in terms of like citations almost, uh, did you find it was helpful to play the game yourself and take notes or recordings? Or were you looking up like Let's Plays and stuff? How does that process work kind of for an academic purpose? Okay, so 
I was doing a combination of the two. Mm. When I started out, I wanted to make sure that I was playing through everything so I could speak from firsthand experience. Uh, and if you go back far enough in my Twitter feed to like 2016, 2017, you will find me live tweeting my playthroughs of Resident Evil 1, 2, and 3. And like I played through as Chris, as Jill, as Claire A, Leon B, as Leon A, Claire B. I, I went through all of the iterations. Oh, partially, for RE2, that'd be a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that, like, after the PlayStation games and PlayStation games, RE4, and about halfway through RE5, I, I realized that this was taking way too much time and had to shift to Let's Plays because I, like, I had already played all of these games aside aside from the uh, side games. Uh, a lot of those I did wind up playing like off the clock to just get enough experience with them to be able to talk about them. But it was to the point where I needed to be able to refer to sections, but didn't have the time to play through them myself while still getting everything done in a conceivable time frame. Mm -hmm. <laughs> sure, yeah. Uh, so it, it did turn into a combination of the two. Uh, there are certain things that I had to go in and test myself. Like, I can't remember if I mentioned this for Resident Evil 2, but I know I mentioned this for uh, the first one. I went in myself and intentionally got myself killed by a stand bog standard zombie as both Chris and Jill to determine whether they took the same amount of damage or mm. whether there was a differential there. Right. Fun fact, Chris can take more damage than Jill, but they balanced that out in Resident Evil 2. Uh, Claire and Leon take the same amount of damage. Oh, that's interesting. That was actually one of the things that we were talking about earlier, right? In uh, Resident Evil 1, which was strange because I think I think they mentioned that Jill had military training and somehow she was made out to be so infantilized that she couldn't even do like the puzzles, which is actually something that actually is the, question, the third question. Um, so when you talk about gender representation in RE1, it's less to do with sexualized imagery or any assumptions on the player's gaze and much more focused on the interactive elements of the game itself. This obviously comes to a head in one of the game's, um, you know, most infamous cutscenes, which, uh, you know, bury the door won't open <laughs> and we have the whole, uh, was it the Jill sandwich part, right? Yep. Um, yep. What do you make of the contradiction between Jill's apparent skill set and the game's habit of sending Barry to save her? Okay, so there are a couple of things going on there because one thing that needs to be done is you can't look at Jill's campaign and Jill's dynamic with Barry in a vacuum. You have to look at what the game is doing with Chris as well because you will actually see mm -hmm. a parallel dynamic there. Uh, in Jill's campaign, there's Jill and Barry. In Chris's campaign, there's Chris and Rebecca. It, right. Rebecca, Shinji Mikami has gone on record as saying that he regrets how helpless, infantile Rebecca was in the first game because she was mm. entirely dependent on Chris, uh, not just for protection, but for approval. Everything she did, she was like, is this good, Chris? Which <laughs> got really old really fast and honestly was more in keeping with the Night of the Living Dead inspiration, uh, which Romero himself said he regretted for Night of the Living Dead. Uh, we can get into that if you want. Oh, that's interesting. But, okay, so in a TIFF talk that uh, 
Romero gave alongside a 35 millimeter screening of Night of the Living Dead back in 2012, November 2012, I believe. October, November. I uh, I was there for that. It was really cool. But he talked about how he regretted making Barbara the main female character so helpless and comatose, which is why when Tom Savini did the remake in 1990, I think, uh, she turned into the lone survivor at the end. Oh, interesting. So, yeah, it's interesting that there's that parallel in the same haunted house situation where the creators both are like, yeah, we really regret making that that female character that helpless. But at the same time, you kind of get that with Jill to the point where, Mm -hmm. uh, and I've mentioned this to some screenwriter friends of mine, and they're like, oh, that makes sense. But Jill's campaign is not about Jill. Hmm. Jill's campaign is Barry's story. Jill discovers what's going on. Sure, the player is controlling Jill. Sure. But the character arc is Barry's. He is the one with character growth. He is the one who actually makes the meaningful changes to the story and the meaningful progress. Like every time there's meaningful progress, he is there. There's the Jill sandwich scene. There's the hole in the floor after you kill, uh, oh, I can't remember the snake's name now. Oh, is it Whisper or something like that or Calm? I feel, yeah, I feel like it is Whisper. Uh, but I, I also feel like I'm pulling Metal Gear Solid names out of here. <laughs> sure. <laughs> but it's Yawn. It's Yawn. Yawn, right? there we go. <laughs> uh, after you kill Yawn, uh, and there's that hole in the ground, which leads to the lone grave, which, fun fact, is what was left of the graveyard that was advertised in the pre-release magazine ads, Hmm. the ending that you get is dependent on how you interact with Barry. If you wait for Barry to go look for another rope and he comes back and says he can't find one, you get the good ending. Hmm. If you're just like, nah, to hell with this guy, I'm going to go off on my own, you get one of the bad endings. You don't necessarily get the worst ending, but you get the ending where the tyrant escapes. So... You can get three different endings for each character. There's one where uh, the opposite character, the one who's locked in the jail cell at the end, gets left behind when the mansion explodes. You can get one where you save that character, but the mansion doesn't explode and the tyrant walks off into the uh, hills of, of the outskirts of Raccoon City. And then there's the good ending where everyone escapes and the mansion blows up, except if you look closely, you'll notice in the good ending, that in Chris's good ending, Barry isn't there. And in Jill's good ending, Rebecca isn't there. So someone oh, still wow. dies. <laughs> That's fascinating. In order to get the best ending, you need to defer to Barry. Mm. And so, like, even in the remake, I believe there's a point at which the game asks you, should you trust Barry or should you be cautious? Mm. And you have to trust him to get the good ending. <laughs> so... Jill's campaign is Barry's story. Right. And so, yes, she, again, going back to the Stop Skeletons from Fighting episode, Jill is arguably the better soldier, which in itself is interesting because she's supposed to be a police officer, but militarization of police and all of that. She's better trained, but she, because of the dynamics, she has to defer to the father figure. Hmm. That's wild. I mean, I would say like um, kind of broadly, 
hopefully this isn't too controversial to say, but gaming spaces online can be hostile to sort of any discourse on gender. But I feel like everyone who has seen the Jill Sandwich scene is like, oh, something's off. Like, this is weird. <laughs> right? And I think there's something to be said uh, to your point that, like, writing or underwriting women characters, that's just bad writing, period. I guess, I guess that sort of ties in as well to Night of the Living Dead. The director has some kind of some kind of second thoughts about having done that. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I, I don't think it's that controversial to say that uh, online gaming spaces are hostile to certain gender dynamics. There has mm -hmm. been enough ink spilled about that. And like mm -hmm. so, some of my colleagues, uh, like uh, Kishona Gray has an entire body of work around not just how women are treated in online gaming spaces, but women of color or intersectional women are treated in online gaming spaces. So it, it, it's not a controversial opinion. It's something that needs to be addressed, but it is mm -hmm. definitely a thing. And yeah, honest, like I, with the original Resident Evil, the minute to minute dialogue makes sense when you know how it was developed because it was written by Japanese authors in English because they were trying to approximate what they thought of as an American B movie. But at the same time, because of the budget constraints, all of the dialogue was recorded in one or two takes and never in context. It was just, oh. here, read this line. There was no indication of motivation. There was no indication of the scene that they were in. They were just like, okay, um, you were almost a Jill sandwich. <laughs> and like, that's... <laughs> I was going to say, well, the read, it makes sense once, you know, they have no context for what it yeah. what it entails, right? Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, I, in fact, uh, I think it was Residents of Evil on YouTube uh, actually just had a bunch of the original actors from the first Resident Evil within the last year or so on to play the game through because they had never experienced it in full or together. And so they're like, oh, that's why I was saying that. Hmm. Oh, that's that's a scary workflow. Yeah, because... Apparently, because of budget constraints, they only ever really saw each other for the opening and ending cutscenes. Hmm. Wow. Is it the same actors in both? Sorry, in both? Oh, sorry. I phrased that weirdly. Like the voice actors, are they also the FMV actors? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, strange. Yeah, that is a weird workflow indeed. I guess, yeah, before we run too far behind, uh, my next question is something that I'm wildly curious about that. You, you had a lot of research on, uh, so I'm very curious what you think of this. But um, so Resident Evil 2, before it's released, there's some sort of trailer or uh, pre-release media that shows an unfinished, uh, a very different build of the game that eventually got leaked. But it's it's just a different take on Resident Evil 2. And I guess um, if you could speak to like what that is, because I don't even necessarily have the words for it. But also there's there's a significant difference in the women's zombies in that version. Um, yeah. Uh, how would you explain that? Oh, yeah. OK, so. Yeah, th this involves going into the development history for the game because that initial version, uh, what the fan community has dubbed Resident Evil 1.5, was, I'm trying to remember the percentage, it's like 80% or 90% complete when... Oh, wow. Yeah, when I think it was Mikami himself who was like, you know what, this is not working, this is boring, we need to scrap this and restart. Because where... The release version of Resident Evil has the police station as an old art museum. So that's why you get the whole like cathedral-like lobby, uh, all of the statuary for the puzzles, all of the paintings. Oh. Uh, 
In the original version of Resident Evil 2, the police station was much more like an 80s action movie police station. Everything was concrete, all of the rooms were square, uh, the lighting was through slatted uh, blinds, and everything kind of looked samey. Mm, but just an office at, look. Yeah, yeah. A lot of offices, the, the jail cells were just off to the side. Um, honestly, I, every time I see it, I keep thinking of the police station from the first RoboCop. Oh, interesting. Where, like, you've got that the desk right at the entrance. You've got all, or, like, even something like Brooklyn Nine-Nine, where you've got that space. It's the characters that are interesting, but the space itself is just there. Mm -hmm. Well, it's open, like, open concept, which is pretty strange. I guess I don't really think police stations are like that. Probably yeah, not at all. Uh, yeah, that, that's why I tend to go more towards Robocop, because you've got the glass partitions and the more cubicle-esque thing going on. Um, I, I, I'm not going to lie. I haven't been in too many police stations. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> sure. Neither are we. I haven't, at least. I don't know. But from the exterior, <laughs> it doesn't look that way. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they're not designed for comfort either way. <laughs> Fair. But... Uh, it, that also led to it not being particularly visually interesting. And the story was just a, there are a bunch of survivors in the police station. They're all trying to work together to get out. So it, there wasn't really a main antagonist. There wasn't really any sort of major uh, confrontation at the end. Chief Irons was friendly and not at all the super creepy uh, taxidermy sex pest that he was in the final release. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, so like it, it, it is very interesting playing the released build, especially considering the fan community is working to complete it. So all of the collision detection that uh, wasn't finished, all of the unfinished areas, they're doing things like pulling renders from other games to try and finish those areas to make it a 100% complete game. Wow. But there's enough there to see what was going on and what worked and what didn't. And so having gone through all of that preamble, <laughs> uh, I think part of what's going on with the shift in the female zombies is if you look at the character models in 1.5 versus two, the character models in two are significantly more detailed. And I don't just mean like the texture mapping or uh, all, any of that. They have more features. They have more aspects to them that are modeled in polygons. So I suspect part of what's going on there is needing to allocate resources in order to get that higher detail. Oh, interesting. But at the same time, there are still enough variations of male zombie because you get the cops, you get the office workers, you get the lab workers, you get the naked zombies. Um, you got two different versions of cop, if I recall correctly. It, it, it's mm. been a while. I apologize. But I'm pretty sure you got two different variations of cop. You get lots of variations of the male zombie. But the only female zombie you get in the final version is the one wearing the Daisy Duke shorts and the halter top. Whereas in the original, you got zombies that looked much more like they had come out of everyday life. Like, well, okay, still with stereotypical gender dynamics because you got like secretary zombies, um, you got librarian zombies, you got 
people wearing professional outfits as opposed to just I'm going to the club or the biker bar. Right. It was more like office wear and things you'd see in, a, in an urban city. But you're right. Exactly. Within the context. Yeah. It was more like that's club wear. Going out to the yeah. movies with your friends. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that was the only model that they kept. Mm. Wow, that is. Yeah, because I think the the number you give in your dissertation is that there are seven kinds of male zombies in Resident Evil 2's shipped release. And then there's there's one female zombie, like full stop. Yeah, yeah. And the really interesting thing with that is when the... Oh, I'm trying to remember if the DualShock version introduced the Mercenaries motor or if that was in Resident Evil 3. But with the first, the very first Mercenaries mode, which, yeah, I think it, I think it is too. It was one of the unlockables after Tofu and Hunk. Mm. I believe so, uh, yes. But they included a model for Chris. So you could play as Chris or Claire. I don't think they included Jill, though. So there, you can kind of see where their priorities are, both in terms of who's included and who's excluded. Mm-hmm. 